Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour Book Club with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. This month, we have been reading Attack of the 50-Foot Women, How Gender Equality Can Save the World, our kind of book, uh, by Catherine Mayer, who's going to be talking to us today. Just a reminder that, of course, if you are reading the book, come and tell us about it on social. Tweet us at Badass Women's Hour, HR at Badass Women's Hour. And if you're not sure about whether or not you want to read the book, lucky you, we've got a little sneak preview. The first chapter is coming up here on this podcast after the interview. So do stay with us for that. And because we're really nice, we have 50 audiobooks to give away with Kobo.com. Just go to Kobo.com, type in the code BADASS when you're ordering Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, and we will be giving away 50 free audiobooks. But there's only 50, so you have to get in quick. After that, they are gone. Very excited to welcome Catherine Mayer to our Badass Book Club. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. You're more than welcome. Uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Women. First of all, Tell us about the title. <laughs> there is a rather marvellous B-movie of that title, uh, and it it speaks volumes, really, to Attitudes to Women. It was made in 1958, and um, what happens is that there's this unhappily married couple. She's She's wealthy. The husband is cheating on her. She drives into the desert, encounters a space alien, as you do when you're having a marital dispute, uh, then grows two fifty foot tall and uses this new power that she has to kill and maim. Um, of course, starting with cheating husband and and um, girlfriend. Uh, so you know it's a parable of the danger of the power of women unleashed, and it's very interesting because they then remade the movie in the nineteen nineties during the the sort of third wave of feminism where you know uh, if you you're i suspect all too young to remember the era of the power suit with the big shoulders and yeah. you know the a particular notion of female empowerment and they remake it with Daryl Hannah at that point in the title role yeah, that's the version i've seen right <laughs> yeah. which has a very different sort of uh, the the whole kind of moral of the story is quite different mm. But it's still very, very problematic in so many different ways. Um, so I started thinking about it because I was being haunted by 
a particularly bad advertising campaign by Dolce & Gabbana for, um, I think it's actually for a kind of perfume I've now forgotten, but it, it um, stars Scarlett Johansson. And she was draped kind of 50 foot long across the top of London double-decker buses on these huge hoardings. And she's a really intelligent woman, but the way they photographed her, she looked both frightening and intensely stupid. And um, so I kept thinking of her as some some version of the 50-foot women. So when I came to write the book, I started thinking about the way women are portrayed and the fears that, that people have around female um, women with agency, basically. What was it that led you to write the book? What was the moment where you said, okay, actually, I've I need to talk about this now. I'm going to sit down because it is packed with facts. What made you decide right now is the time that I have to write it? Um, it's uh, basically <coughs> I accidentally co-founded the Women's Equality Party. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, I'm losing my voice already. Too much public speaking. Um, in 2015, and I thought um, I kept being asked all these questions about why we needed such a party and and. Also, the really big question, why at this stage of the 21st century are, are women still so disadvantaged? And I thought, oh, there must be some book I can recommend to people. Um, they would also ask me, what's the difference between second wave feminism and third wave feminism, for example? And I thought, oh, there must be a, a resource that answers all of these questions. And I started looking around and I realized there wasn't a book that, that answered this much less explained how to get to gender equality so I thought I'd better write it myself and so straight in what's the answer <laughs> <laughs> um well there are again several answers I do think that anybody who tells you that there is a simple solution to anything is just a dangerous populist and you should treat them as such but there is one very clear fact which gets overlooked all the time, and that is that more gender-equal countries are happier, healthier, and wealthier, and that it is absolutely shameful that we are not making more progress towards these goals, and indeed, in many, many areas are now backsliding. And so what I set out in the book are strategies for how we make much faster progress, and these include um, things that are specific to the UK, where, of course, I'm doing politics, but also uh, apply worldwide. And part of it is understanding the interlocking mechanisms that are holding women back. And by the way, when I say holding women back, holding everyone back, mm. it's incredibly damaging for men too. Um, but it's also, I do think that there are certain ways that we can really turbocharge the progress towards gender equality. Is this the equalia you mention in the book? Well, yes. So one of the things I noticed when I was first out advocating for uh, the Women's Equality Party on the doorstep was that people seemed quite nervous about the idea of gender equality because a lot of men think it means giving something up as opposed to gaining something. Yeah, it's seen as a bit of a pie, isn't it? And it's yeah. like, well, if you give too much for the women, mm. there won't be anything left for the men. Exactly. but the, And they also think that it means um, enforced uniformity of some kind, you know, a kind of gender neutrality as opposed to a gender diversity, for example, or, or a unanimity of thought, or, you know, they, they instantly go into that thought police sort of thing. And actually, 
I thought what would be a really useful thought experiment for the book is to think about what a gender equal world would look like because there's literally nowhere on the planet that is gender equal. The Nordic countries do a lot better, but they're not they're nowhere near gender equal either. So Equalia is the country that I envisage as the end destination that we want to get to because I actually thought if you could take some of the fear out of what that destination might be, but also have some understanding of what the difficulties would be even in Equalia. I am not saying Equalia is utopia. I'm not saying that it solves every problem, but I'm saying, my God, it's a much nicer place. It's somewhere we all want to live. <laughs> and so you've obviously been thinking about this for a very long time. Why do you think the pace of change is so slow? Well, it's interesting because the pace of change is both slow and really fast at the moment. You know, you only need to turn on the TV news to realise that we're in an age of extraordinary turbulence mm -hmm. where there's a lot of convulsive change. But the problem with that change is that that's actually opening the door to some of the retrograde steps I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Donald Trump came into office with... Um, I'm not sure he had a coherent thought in his head, but he was brought to office by an unholy coalition of socially conservative forces that are actually literally trying to turn back the clock on women and are succeeding. And you saw last year the World Economic Forum revise upwards its estimate for how long it would take to get to uh, to close the gender gap. They're now saying 217 years. So we're we're literally seeing those things rushing backwards. But that same turbulence is also an incredible opportunity for change because one of the things that's held women back isn't just these sort of nasty men who actually have it in for us. It's a lot of kind of complacent, progressive people thinking that they've done enough already mm. and enshrined in systems that stop change from happening. And what you're actually seeing with the crisis of mainstream politics, mainstream politics really hasn't been as good for women as it should be. You know, this in 2018, we've been celebrating the centenary of the first women in, in the UK getting the vote. But at a point where you still have only a third of the representation in Westminster, for example, you know, 33% uh, in the Commons and fewer in the House of Lords, it's not it's that progress is so slow partly because people literally don't do enough they just think that change is going to happen by itself and also they're not really as a lot of them aren't really as bought into change as they should be for some of the reasons we were discussing they think change means giving something up rather than getting something better one of the stories in the book that really shocked me was, I mean, <laughs> there were lots, but there was one, sort of particularly, was uh, the story of a woman that you worked with who had worked on the Obama campaign. And she had been door knocking on people's houses in quite a Republican state. And she goes and door knocks on a guy's house and she sees him and she thinks, oh, God, this is going to be horrendous. It's going to be the most awful conversation. And he says, no, I'm definitely voting for Obama because if I vote for the Republican side, then I've got Sarah Palin. I'd rather yeah. have Obama than a woman. And I was just massively shocked by that, that a, somebody was basing their vote on gender uh, B, that there was the implication there that I'd rather have a black man than a woman. Um, that there's this kind of, that that sort of level of identity, whether it's gender, racial, that identity politics is so strong that people are voting against it rather than voting 
for the person they think is the best candidate. Is, do you think that is where our politics is going now? Uh, I don't think it's ever got away from it, but yeah. um, you used uh, the phrase identity politics and it yeah. always makes me laugh that identity politics is mostly used as an insult by white men who don't understand that they are yeah. themselves practicing identity politics, the identity politics of the white man. <laughs> and by the way, I mean, I would, I have come across just as many people who would rather vote for a woman than a yeah. black man, yeah. you know, and woe betide you if you're a black woman. Yeah. Um, so the, these, you know, that's these things intersect, but where there is this unanimity is that there's this kind of default politician um, this default leader in all sorts of spheres, and that default is a white man. And what, uh, for me, where you saw it the most clearly was in those election statistics for Trump, where 53% of white women actually voted for Trump, um, whereas 90-something percent of black women voted for Hillary. And why that is, uh, again, something that I think we need to kind of understand is that women are part of the problem too very often because we're all brought up in this same cultural soup that's telling us that we're less fit to lead, that we're inferior, that we're less good at things. And so a lot of it has to do with, that's why I said, you know, part of what the book is about is is understanding and exposing these mechanisms in order that we can create change. Because unless you understand what they are, then you don't know what you're up against. I've seen many examples of ignorance is bliss. And with the example of the women that voted for Trump, they're voting ultimately to keep their lives the same. Yes. Because their lives are fine. They think they're fine. The oppressed don't always know that they are oppressed. And yes. I think one of the things that comes that comes through in the book is you, you can't be there is no ignorance in reading the book you're putting facts stats ideas front and center in people's faces and you can't finish reading the book and think oh I can go back to my jolly daily happy life and I personally can say that I, I'm conflicted with it before I acknowledged that I was a black woman I was doing quite well in my career it's the moment I acknowledged that I'm a black woman I started to see things that I'd ignored mm. for a very long time. And there are sometimes I wish I could put my rose-tinted glasses back on because life was a lot easier. So how do you, how, how can you help me? Is there a book too that helps me deal with what I now know? I, well, the problem is I think that that's, that's exactly right and something I recognize so much from my own experiences and and also all these terrible interviews I get asked to do you being the hugely honorable exception here <laughs> where I'm called into a studio um, where people say you know this me too movement's gone too far I mean sexual harassment wasn't really that bad was it you know you yeah. lived through it it didn't do you any harm it's like actually the reason that women of my age managed to get through as much as we did is because we developed coping mechanisms mm. where we literally didn't see it yeah. I mean we did see it we were very aware of it but we we sort of um it bounces off almost. You, you you almost make yourself blind yeah. to certain things yeah. in order to survive it's a coping mechanism mm. and it does not mean it's a good one and it means the system continues mm. so my problem for you Nat is that <laughs> basically I'm really sorry that it 
that it has that impact on you. But I think the only way that we get change is for all of us to stop having these coping mechanisms mm. and start challenging the system. And I have the luxury of having come to that realization um, older than you. So I had more, I had more of my life kind of, um, have, you know, I, I used to think that by rising in journalism as I did, that I was blazing a path that other women would follow. And then I sort of looked yeah. around and realized that really wasn't true. Mm. So, so yeah. Uh, it's tough. But that's why I think that's what, a part of why I wrote the book is I actually think it's really important for people to understand what's going on, what the mechanisms are, to, yeah. for the scales to drop. Mm-hmm. Was there anything when you were writing the book that really challenged some assumptions that you had before <laughs> or made you feel uncomfortable or any revelations when you came to collect all the information? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I think the systemic nature of what we're up against is something that I had certainly been aware of but the more you delve into it and the more you find out the more you realize how hard we we need to fight to change this um and then there were also some stories that people told me where i was even though i have experienced shocking things seen shocking things people would tell me stories and my chin would be on my chest um, and then there were just some weird things. I, I, you know, the the bit about hyenas, for example, makes me laugh still. Do you know that one? No, I don't know that one. That's well, one of the things I thought it was useful to do because there's so much again uh, controversy and polarization around gender and what the meaning of what a woman even is. And so there's a bit where I delve into the science of it, and I talked to a guy called Robin Lovell Badge, who's um, somebody very big in the Francis Crick Institute and an expert on this but he started talking to me about the mating habits of hyenas by way of um, the the ways in which secondary sex characteristics can be mistaken for being the sort of defining uh, the the definer of sex and um, hyenas both male and female have phalluses um, which is a very very odd fact um, and as he said, it makes mating rather difficult. And it also means that the firstborn of every female hyena dies because the birth canal is too narrow. So it's it's just anyway, wow. as I say, this is a slight a slight <laughs> diversion. But one of the joys of writing books, one of the joys of researching books is that you always learn stuff that is just so gripping you want to write a whole book just about hyenas you know um but there i mean more seriously there are chapters in my book where i absolutely now want to go and write a whole a whole book around those chapters so things like the interplay of religion and the impact on on women and how that fits with with different cultures i mean that i found that so fascinating and um, I am now doing a lot of work in uh, the tech sector and I write, uh, there's a chapter about Silicon Valley building the future yeah. with hardly any women involved in the process. Yeah. And that really matters to all of us. So, Can I ask you, how do you start going about writing a book like this? Because it is, as I said at the beginning, it is fact dense. You know, every page has like 25 <laughs> stats on it. Where do you even begin on the research? How do you, if somebody has an idea, how do they do it? Well, I like, with any book that I've written, I like a kind of process that I call marination. You know, like like I'm getting myself ready as a piece of meat for the grill. Um, that's a terrible image, isn't it? Um, 
but I liked I really like to um soak myself in the subject. So I start by reading everything I can get hold of. And of course, during the time because I'm so old, during the time that I've been doing this, the ability to marinate is ever more um is ever richer because there's so many online sources now in addition to you know, I used to just go to libraries and read for hours. Yeah. Um, now I, I will read literally everything I can get hold of. I will watch films. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm preparing, I'm doing a one woman show next year, FFS, um, which will, which will be about some of the things we're talking about. And for that show, you know, I found myself watching, um, a, a 1960s Japanese movie the other night, which I knew I was watching it, but it would be really hard to explain why. But so I like to have the widest frame of reference possible and, and the de the deepest. But then as you're writing, you discover what you don't know. So yeah. even though you've done this marination process, you then, the interviews with other people, the stuff touching base with real experts in different fields is absolutely essential to to kind of you need to road test where you are and and you need to question all your assumptions all the time so that's what I do uh, but the actual writing process then is is kind of my favorite and least favorite bit um it's the you don't get dressed for four months in in my case you just live in pajamas and um you know you you don't have any life outside the book um, I I love it, and then the thing I always find hard is going back out into the world. <laughs> um, in the chapter about sex and pornography, you say I came in with my views like this, and then I learned all this stuff, mm. and my views were challenged. And I thought what was really lovely throughout the whole book is it's not, even though it is how gender equality can save the world, it's not a this is the only way to do it, and this is the definitive final answer. You're very open about the fact that you come with one view and then you learn something else yeah. and the view changes and then you think this and you still are open to interpretation. How do you think that is going to sit in a world where everyone seems to want the definitive answer? But well that but that's part of what I'm fighting against. Yeah. You know, when I mentioned the one woman show, that's what that's about. Yeah. So well well spotted. I actually think, you know, one of the reasons these debates they're not just polarized, they're actually dangerous and damaging. You know, so the obvious one um, around, I mean, you just mentioned mm -hmm. pornography, the whole sex industry, about how we deal with that. There is no really straightforward solution to it. It is really complicated. And if the moment you start saying the only way to deal with it is this, then you're throwing one set of people under a bus or another mm -hmm you're kind of ignoring a whole set of repercussions and, and resonances that these things have. Absolutely the same with the trans debate. Um, absolutely the same around, you know, some of the stuff that we're talking outside, about outside the book, like Brexit. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that there is that there is a right position and a wrong position. And the idea also that the extremes are the true representatives of those positions that's so damaging i'm seeing you having a bit of an existential crisis because <laughs> as you're talking i'm also thinking about the fact that within that we make the assumption that people can deal with options and choice and i don't think we've necessarily educated uh, or supported a learning style that enables people to understand decision making and choice and options and gray area people need it's this or it's this choose and so 
in again in opening up this this debate i'm almost swaying to the fact that right now what people want is definitive leadership so how how do you do both how do you enable people to think broadly but provide direction well it's funny because i think you ne- i do think you need to do both um so one of the things that i'm not advocating for is this sort of dangerous false equivalence that says um it's okay for everybody to think everything. I think we have to be really mm-hmm. clear what our values are, yeah. you know, and the normalization of racism and and homophobia and misogyny mm-hmm. is not something we should accept under any circumstances and we have to call it out and challenge it. But within that, the ways in which we talk about what the options are and um, as I say, the kind of, it's also partly around the way debates are framed so the notion that you can have a serious conversation about what about how in enhancing trans rights impacts on um the wider issue of women's rights by putting in a room two people with absolutely polarized and extreme views on this when in reality the majority of people do occupy much more of a, a grey area and have questions as well as assertions. I mean, asking questions is a really good start, for example, rather than all the declarative, this is what we must do. I mean, I, I think you have to be clear where they are. And for me, the rejection that is very strong is a rejection of that kind of prejudice that sees one human being as being less valuable than another. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons, by the way, I always find it kind of ironic that people think of feminism in some ways being man-hating, because mm-hmm. it's actually about valuing everybody and valuing their potential, but also not assuming that people are hardwired to be particular ways, but much more allowing people to find who they are. But it's also, I mean, I'm very much in favour of equality on a, and, and by equality, I do not mean the rise of one group at the expense of another. Mm. I mean, looking at um, global inequalities where the, if you look at where, how much or how rather how little women own and earn worldwide, this overlaps very much with the kind of global poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the scourge of violence against women and girls, this is stuff, th- these are human rights issues that are off- very often dismissed as being women's issues. Mm-hmm. And I think if you tackle the biggest global inequality there is, which is between men and women, it helps you to unpick some of those other inequalities. But I certainly wouldn't stop there. So, but it rel- got, sorry, I go say, it relies on people knowing what their values are. So I'm going to put them on the spot. Ems, what's your value? What are your values? <laughs> uh, freedom and respect. Freedom, security, kindness, mm. love and humour. I'm going to take all of yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, humour, 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 and and um, I, I was, I was going to say, and a and a decent cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically all we need to get through the day. Uh, Catherine May, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Attack of the Fifty Foot Women: How Gender Equality Can Save the World is brilliant and thoughtful, and quite frankly, just arms you with really great stats to take out and throw at people whenever they're being difficult. <laughs> Uh, so recommend do go and read it and if you do read it come and tell us what you think of it uh, you can find us at Badass Women's Hour HR on Twitter Instagram Facebook all the socials 
Um, Catherine, if people want to talk to you, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me on Twitter, though. Sadly, I have quite high um, filter settings because they do find me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> at Catherine underscore Mayer. Uh, if you want to have a serious conversation with me or even a funny one, that's fine. I'm really <laughs> open for that. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Mayor of London. Nice. <laughs> dolls like it um, or of course you can come and talk to all of us as well I'm at Harriet Minter Nat at Natalie Campbell and Emma at Emma Sexton uh, we love chatting to you and we love hearing your views so please come and tell us what you think of the book what's interested you uh, and what you think is truly badass about Attack of the 50 Foot Women all of it to be honest pretty much all of it uh, we will be here next month with another book club pick um, or if you have not yet caught up do you remember we have two episodes before this so you can go and pick up on Vox really great science fiction dystopia about what happens when women can only say a hundred words a day uh, or I invited her in by Adele Parks all about female friendship and the dark side we liked both of those a lot this has been Badass Women's Hour we will be here again next month This Mother's Day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Chapter 1. Gate Crashing the Club. Downtrodden peoples claim superior qualities to compensate for inferior status. Women cling to a belief in essential female difference. We are emotionally intelligent. We are nurturing. We work together rather than against each other. We can multitask. Want something done? Ask a busy woman. The early months of the Women's Equality Party appeared to reinforce this thesis. Each successive gathering of our newly formed steering committee brought a banquet to the table of energy, ideas, sweet concord, and food. So much food. Sandy came with herrings, pickled herrings, herrings in a sweet mustard and dill sauce, herrings in soured cream and pumpernickel already cut to carry satisfactory consignments of herring from plate to mouth without the need of forks. 
others baked cakes from scratch. I supplied alcohol. Each meeting also brought long lists of tasks, completed without reminders, despite multiple commitments tugging at sleeves. One of the most time-consuming jobs involved answering the unstanchable flow of emails that news of we had triggered. Volunteers often work through the night, their exhaustion mitigated by the enthusiasm of the correspondence. Thank you for giving me something to believe in again. At last, something to get excited about in politics. For the first time in my 14 years of not bothering to vote, I am inspired. I am 16 years old and passionate about feminism. I would love to be a bigger part of the worldwide fight for women's equality. I'm so excited about this party. I've waited my whole adult life for it. Yes, please. This is just what we have needed for such a long time. I'm on board. We have much work to do. Please delegate. To delegate, you need a structure. We created an organisation from scratch and then scrambled to update it as needs and priorities changed, sprouting subcommittees to formulate policy and deal with press, social media, outreach, fundraising, finance, and the demands that bureaucracy ladles onto the political process. Britain is generous with its portions of red tape, far more so than many other nations. In July 2015, I met up with Suniva Schultz-Flory who had also co-founded a new political party four months earlier. Inspired by Sweden's feminist initiative, she and a small group of friends started a Norwegian offshoot, feminist initiative Bergen Hordaland, and they were already preparing for their first elections for local government in September. They didn't need to do much more to make the party official than to announce its existence. They didn't have to raise money for deposits to run, just collect a certain number of signatures. Norway's proportional voting system meant the entry level for new parties didn't seem too daunting. Only a few thousand votes to win a council seat. As our Norwegian counterpart plunged into campaigning, we jumped through hoops just to secure the right to campaign, an exercise as questionable as a dolphin show at a water park and as anachronistic. Politics in the UK doesn't just look and sound like a club. It is a club, with rules designed to exclude the wrong type of person as defined by the type of person who already belongs to the club. A new party cannot open for membership or put up candidates for election until registered with the Electoral Commission. That involves writing a constitution and rules of association and appointing officers. You must also establish a company, and then find a bank willing to accept your business, because a party is also an enterprise. Quite a few bankers sucked pens and stared skywards when confronted by a start-up enterprise without a business plan or guarantee of income. You can see why they might worry. The club rules ensure it's hugely expensive to do politics. There are deposits to be paid for each candidate, £10,000 to stand for Mayor of London. A further £10,000 to appear in the official brochure that goes out to voters. Turn again, Whittington. The road to London City Hall is truly paved with gold. Campaign costs are eye-watering, especially in the the first-past-the-post elections such as Westminster's, 
where the overall number of votes across the UK matters less than the concentration of votes in individual constituencies. In the May 2015 general election, UKIP picked up one in eight votes, almost 3.9 million in total, but won only a single seat. The Scottish National Party gained 1.5 million votes and 56 seats. To successfully challenge old parties, newcomers must finance not only profile-raising marketing and PR campaigns, but also street-by-street, door-by-door drives, reliant on volunteers and paid expertise, and underpinned by pricey technologies. There's another way in which money talks. One reason politics is dominated by affluent men in suits is that candidacy is expensive and risky. It's far easier for people with private incomes or salaried jobs that grant leave of absence to run, and that's assuming they aren't caring for children or elderly relatives. The Women's Equality Party wanted to support women to become candidates, not only by paying the deposit money, but also by providing bursaries to help with childcare and other costs. So we were eager to open for membership as soon as possible to establish the revenue stream necessary to do this, any of this. We needed funding just to collect funds. The Electoral Commission allows political parties to accept donations over £500 only from permissible donors, UK-based companies and individuals registered on a UK electoral roll. The regulations are intended to stop foreigners and tax exiles from buying influence in British politics, no representation without taxation, as it were, but do nothing of the kind. Any global corporation with a UK subsidiary is entitled to donate, no matter how breathtaking its tax-minimising schemes. Any person rich enough to stash wealth offshore is probably also rich enough to find channels to donate. Yet we risked penalties if, say, a British national living in the UK but not registered to vote gave a series of small donations that in total breached the £500 threshold. The only way to guard against such accidents is to check would-be donors against the electoral register, which inevitably isn't a conveniently centralised electronic list, but a series of lists held by local authorities. Sean McGee, a new law graduate and youngest member of a steering committee, became Wee's first paid employee, hired to perform these checks. She immediately spotted a potentially dodgy transaction. The party had launched a time-limited founding membership scheme, ranging from £2 a month to £1,000 and upwards for lifetime membership. Sandy enrolled online for the latter option, but Sean could find no tox figs on the electoral roll. She could not know that Sandy's information is withheld since a stalker broke into her house. Sean diligently rang Sandy to query her eligibility to help fund the party she had founded. The final hurdle to gaining official party status involved seeking the Electoral Commission's approval for our logo and slogan for use on ballot papers. Two wonderfully talented designers, Sarah Burns and Jeanette Clement, volunteered to produce a logo for us. They'd never met before joining the steering committee, but instantly devised a way of working together and celebrated that collaborative spirit and the party's aims with a design that turned the E of we into an equal sign. 
they chose a palette not in use by any other party. Green, white and violet, the colours of the suffragette movement. The committee then voted on a range of slogans and landed back on the one I had written for the public meeting back in March. Because equality is better for everyone. This book aims to test that proposition. It might appear that the only point of debate relates to men and whether by ceding their dominance they would really gain more than they lose. The rest seems self-evident. Inequality is yawning and its impact is disfiguring. The gap between rich and poor countries and between rich and poor is widening. 1% of the global population owns more wealth than everyone else on the planet combined. Not even the 1% look happy about this state of affairs, as they transfer from one hermetically sealed bubble to the next, ringed with security lest real life accost them. In rich countries, the poor struggle daily to survive. As many as a fifth of Britons live below the poverty line, as do more than 15% of Americans. Social mobility is stalling. Social unrest is deepening. Conflicts spill across borders and reach out violently into distant city centres. Many of the people displaced by those conflicts, some 65.3 million on current estimates, seek shelter in countries already lacking resources. 86% of the world's refugees are lodged in the developing world. Migrants reaching Europe should expect a mixed reception. Any dreams of universal live-and-let-live tolerance are dissipating, as populist hate-mongers and extremist movements find, in their supposed polarities, common cause against liberalism. Surely, if we successfully dismantle the patriarchy, the biggest structural injustice of all, other structural injustices must also begin to crumble. Surely, a more gender-equal world will be a more equal world in other ways too. Yet from the start of we, easy assumptions frayed. Our first steering committee meeting took place at my central London flat, in my kitchen. We sat around an extendable table owned by my family since 1933, when my widowed great-grandmother started dealing antiques from her front room in a Chicago suburb during the city's Century of Progress International Exposition. A world's fair, with a motto, Science Finds, Industry Applies, Man adapts. The table tells a story not just of female entrepreneurship, but of comfort. My middle-class family, emigres to the US, not refugees, lived in homes large enough for such a table. There were ten of us at the first steering committee meeting. Not every woman, and neither of the men who joined us, had been born to the same level of advantage and none of us had problem-free lives. Between us, we wrestled with disability, physical and mental health issues, had experienced racism, homophobia, ageism and abuse. Still, we all enjoyed the luxury of political activism. Entry to the steering committee rested on two qualifications, an enthusiasm for the idea of the party and a commitment to getting it started. Many women are too busy with low-paid work or unpaid caregiving to spend time trying to fix the problems of women in low-paid work or unpaid caregiving. Our participation in the committee defined us as an elite. 
And we knew that to build a representative party, we needed to be a representative party at the core. It would take us longer to appreciate the scale and complexity of that task. As the committee recruited additional members and culinary contributions became more elaborate, we had to look for other venues. The size of my table wasn't the issue. Mandy Collarin, an actor and activist, used a motorised wheelchair that could not navigate the narrow doorway to my flat. Other members volunteered to host, but every alternative venue revealed structural impediments that able-bodied residents hadn't appreciated. A lift in one apartment block proved too small. Another disabled committee member offered her flat, but its front steps defeated Mandy's chair. There are degrees of disability, as there are degrees of inequality. Many impediments are visible only to those whose path they block. Mandy is a coruscating speaker, painfully and often hilariously direct in her opinions. She spoke up at our first public meeting and again at the second, held at Conway Hall, since 1929 the home of the Ethical Society and a fulcrum of liberal activism. Its CEO, Jim Walsh, had quickly decided to support the nascent Women's Equality Party by making the auditorium available to us for events at low rates with deferred payment. Unfortunately, Conway Hall's precarious income and listed building status meant that although it is fully accessible for audience members in wheelchairs, there is no ramp to the stage. We decided against using the stage for that event, and anyone who wanted to speak did so from the floor. Sometimes equality is about finding a level that works for everyone. A lot of the time, it's more complicated than that. At first, we plundered our own address books to grow the party, but our London base risked a London bias. It has been exciting to watch the idea spread to other parts of England and to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and in each context to define different sets of priorities within our unified commitment to change. Committee members' combined circles encompassed a wide range of professions and experiences, even if they were a little heavy on entertainment, media and politics. My friends and contacts came in all shapes and sizes and flavours. If asked, I might well have described them as diverse. That's because it's easy to misunderstand diversity. One friend, a senior figure in the media, explains it well. He is hugely talented, but knows that the fact he ticks some diversity boxes made the companies that employed him look good without actually challenging their culture. He speaks and acts like a member of the establishment club, despite a mixed-race heritage and comprehensive school background. He learned to minimise differences to put people, including people like me, at ease. Frankly, as one black friend who has risen a long way in politics put it to me, we don't frighten the horses, he says. The point he is making is that for organisations to benefit from diversity, be they corporations or political parties, they must accept and value the discomfort of difference. It's pleasant when your colleagues agree. It's often more productive when they challenge. Diversity isn't always visible, and, as my friend pointed out, visible diversity is by no means enough, but it does matter. 
Groucho Marx famously sent a telegram to a Hollywood club. Please accept my resignation. I don't care to belong to any club that will have me as a member. Most people aren't by instinct Marxists. They care to belong only to clubs that appear to accept them. Women aren't just excluded from politics by a lack of time and money. Many are put off by the way it looks and sounds because they cannot see or hear themselves in its monotone braying. In launching a political party that took as one of its core objectives the equal representation of women, that itched to throw open the doors of public institutions and of private enterprises, not just to more women but to a wider range of women, we needed to ensure we didn't replicate the deficiencies of the existing system. This couldn't just be a party for friends and friends of friends, for like-minded people who felt comfortable together. We had to incorporate visible and invisible diversity to attract the widest possible engagement, to engage as an organisation with all of those perspectives. One form of diversity you can't see is that of political allegiance. By having people of divergent political persuasions around the table, and opening our membership to members of all other democratic parties, we intended to identify the tracts of common ground between those parties on gender equality, and either work with them or, by winning votes away from them, spark them into copying our policies. It wouldn't be enough to be a broad church, and we were anyway unlikely to become one if we failed adequately to address the issues that divide the women's movement within itself and from other movements. When feminism does not explicitly oppose racism, and when anti-racism does not incorporate opposition to patriarchy, race and gender politics often end up being antagonistic to each other, and both interests lose, wrote American academic and civil rights activist Kimberley Williams Crenshaw, in 1992. She had coined a term, intersectionality, to describe the ways in which disadvantages such as race, gender, class, religion and age intersect and intensify. And she also proposed frameworks to enable collaborative and mutually beneficial advocacy among disadvantaged groups. Her observation was both true and prophetic, in good ways and bad. America's 2016 elections highlighted deep splits among female voters and the sharpest related to race. 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Black women needed no coaching to understand the dangers a Trump presidency represented to them. Large numbers of white women succumbed to a cocktail of ingrained misconceptions and prejudices. They, we, are taught throughout our lives that white men have a grip on power and wealth, and that the easiest way to share in those benefits is to align with them. We are inculcated with the lie that equality is like a cake. If you take a piece, there is less for me. We also absorb the propaganda that calls into question the abilities of our own sex to lead, just as we will all have picked up racist attitudes. No wonder feminism divides along these lines. And how urgent it is that white women learn fast 
to recognise where our true interest lies in building a world that works better for all women and, indeed, for all genders. Kimberley Crenshaw created an essential framework for thinking about how we should do this. The most effective organisations combating misogyny and racism take an intersectional approach. But women of colour are apt to recoil from the embrace of white feminists who presume to speak for them rather than giving them the floor. Long before white women helped put Trump in the White House, anger at clumsy patronage and at the allied phenomenon of wealthy women presuming to understand the priorities of the poor had become so intense in corners of feminism that the phrase white middle-class feminist emerged as a potent insult. In 1983, the novelist Alice Walker coined the term womanist as an alternative to white feminism. How can you claim the label of those who would oppress you to see their goals realised, even when commonality exists in some areas? Asked the blogger Renee Martin three decades later, in an essay explaining why she, as a black woman, rejects the term feminism. Commonalities are not enough to stop movements that can only succeed through cohesion and volume from splintering. Sandy and I, undeniably white, irretrievably middle class and irrevocably feminist, of course, drew fire. The criticism helped us to focus on the issues underpinning it. Just as men lack a visceral understanding of the female condition, so women leading reasonably comfortable lives may not automatically grasp what it is to suffer multiple oppressions. How could we as activists, in our own flurry of activity, avoid taking up space that others, less privileged, struggle to claim? Were we entitled to found a party? Or was this action proof of entitlement, in the negative sense of the word? The answer, or at least one answer, is that it depends what the party does and achieves. Another is that the appropriate response to critics of white middle-class feminism cannot be for every white middle-class feminist to down tools. That would be to fall into a similar trap as the white middle-class anti-feminists who deny the evident and urgent need for greater gender equality at home because there are more acute examples of misogyny elsewhere. Nimco Ali, co-founder of Daughters of Eve, a non-profit organisation focused on raising awareness and education regarding FGM, female genital mutilation, was one of the first members of the steering committee and attacked in some quarters for joining the Women's Equality Party. She points out that the black, Asian and minority ethnic population of the UK stands at less than 12%. This means, she says, that... There are going to be women at the forefront who are white, but it's how they use their privilege and platform to have that conversation. To acknowledge that some women need less help than others is not to deny that all women need help. The question is how to be helpful. I got to put that question to Kimberley Williams Crenshaw herself in May 2016. She had come to the UK as a guest lecturer at the London School of Economics, on furlough from an extraordinary range of jobs and commitments. Her law professorships at UCLA and Columbia, and the recently formed Congressional Caucus on Black Women and Girls, 
as well as from her executive directorship of the organization she co-founded, the African American Policy Forum, AAPF, and from hashtag Say Her Name, the campaign she and the AAPF had started the previous year with other organizations to draw attention to the black women killed by police and overlooked by the Black Lives Matter movement. She'd arrived in London just two days before that managed to lead me to one of the few good tourist-free bars in Covent Garden. She laughed at my question, then sighed. Well, you have your work cut out for you, she said. I think there has to be a lot of work on all sides, and that's the work of coalition, and that's hard. She gave generous, practical advice about how to do the work, and much encouragement, but also slipped in a warning. I'm suspicious of privileged women who just go, yes, you're absolutely right, and have nothing to say beyond that. You have to engage deeply. I want people to ask and question if they don't feel it, that you can have the fight, you can try to resolve it. So it's kind of about having to find some agreement among those of us who feel othered and are othered. What is it that we want to see? What is it that we want to find agreement on? What is it that shapes our agenda? It took an effort of will not to respond, you're absolutely right, for the sake of the gag, and because she absolutely was. It would never have been possible to build an effective organisation from my kitchen table. We had to go out and reach out, involve an ever-wider demographic and, crucially, find ways to create an internal democracy that gave full weight to each of those voices without slowing momentum or losing sight of the reasons for starting the party in the first place. We've made progress, but nowhere near enough. Pushing for diversity isn't the same as achieving it. An obvious point but one that bears repeating because of the frequency with which organisations quote the diversity policies as supposed evidence of diversity. The process can be long and is littered with obstacles that I have come to understand much better. Right at the beginning, perhaps two days after proposing the party, I called a friend and fellow journalist, Hannah Azib Pool, and attempted to persuade her that she should lead it. My thinking was simple, to the point of naivety. I asked myself, would I vote for her? And the answer was a resounding yes. Would she appeal to voters of all genders, classes and ethnicities? I thought so. Eritrean-born, adopted by a white family in Manchester, she was in a position to speak to the universalities of female experience and of the specifics of intersectionality the ways in which that experience is changed or impacted by other factors. Hannah thanked me and said she'd ponder. A few days later, she declined with expressions of regret. She had too much going on, too many commitments. Straining to hear her as I stood in a noisy airport, phone clasped to ear, I tuned out the background hum of things unsaid. It was only recently that I summoned up the courage to ask her if she had spared me a more brutal response. She explained that the reasons she gave were genuine, but that the deciding factor had been risk, and the risks would always be greater for black women.
the animus she'd attract from trolls and anti-feminists would co-mingle with racism, while some strands of black activism would inevitably label her as a sellout. We represented a leap in the dark and, while she trusted Sandy and me, she couldn't be sure how the party would evolve around us. After working at The Guardian, she knew that organisations sometimes mistake good intentions for good practice. I also hadn't factored in the economic hit she'd taken spending time party building. If we asked her now, she might be more inclined to say yes, she added kindly. There were other barriers to overcome. Some people who came on board kept their support quiet because they were members of parties less enlightened about collaborative politics. Even so, every day brought a fresh crop of outrageous talents to my kitchen table. This, we realised, is what politics might be if it weren't such a narrow club. The candidates we fielded at the elections in May 2016, all new to politics, were extraordinarily gifted and extraordinarily different to each other. The steering committee crackled with ideas and energy. Even in this crowd, Sophie Walker was an obvious standout. I had invited her to speak on equal parenting at our first ever public meeting. She held the attention of the room in a way that only natural communicators can do. In April 2015, the steering committee selected Sophie Leader. The vote was unanimous and unanimously enthusiastic. In August, on the day she came to work at the party full-time, leaving a job at Reuters to do so, she and Sandy and I lined up for a joint portrait in the King's Cross offices of The Guardian. We might have been reenacting the class sketch. First performed in 1966 on David Frost's satirical TV show The Frost Report, the skit featured tall, gaunt John Cleese peering down his nose at the shorter, stockier comedian Ronnie Barker. I look down on him because I am upper class, Cleese says. Barker returns his gaze. I look up to him because he is upper class. But, he swivels to stare at five-foot-nothing Ronnie Corbett, I look down on him because he is lower class. I am middle class. I know my place, deadpans Corbett. Sophie, at well over six foot and skinny, is cleased to my Barker and Sandy's Corbett. Stand us next to each other and the effect is pretty funny. Some of our critics laughed at us rather than with us. They depicted the Women's Equality Party as a joke, and the joke was that we were all middle class. Sandy Toxfig's Women's Equality Party is a middle class ladies' campaign group doomed to fail, read one headline. That neatly summarised the message of the Guardian feature that accompanied the photos, written by a journalist called Paula Cocosa. We arrived for the interview and photo shoot after a full morning of meetings in my kitchen. We'd strategised our approach to a fundraise that evening and discussed Stella Duffy's proposals for extending our reach beyond our initial catchment. The first person to sign up to the party on Facebook and an original member of the steering committee, Stella was our branch builder and queen of email answering, directing the enthusiasms of would-be supporters into practical steps and often pulling all-nighters as she attempted to combine her commitment to we with her work as an author 
and the founder of the community arts and science project, Fun Palaces. A chunk of the morning before the Guardian interview had also been devoted to making progress on policy, a consultative process harnessing the input of our rapidly expanding branches, grassroots organisations, campaigners and experts. We ran through a to-do list that included pinning down the date and detail of our autumn policy launch and figuring out the logistics for a series of membership and fundraising drives, including a potential partnership with the producers and distributor of the movie Suffragette. We discussed merchandising possibilities too. We needed money, we needed staff, and we needed offices. The flow of emails, far from slowing, had multiplied and diversified. In addition to offers of help and declarations of enthusiasm, we now received endless press bids, queries from organisations working in overlapping fields, and approaches from politicians from other parties wanting to scope us out. Many of these communications betrayed false assumptions about the size and resourcing of we. Correspondents complained if they didn't get a response within 24 hours. One group asked us for a donation. We were certainly more organised than we had been. Our subcommittees still relied heavily on volunteers, but this situation was clearly unsustainable for the party and the exhausted volunteers. In addition to Sean, we now had a fierce and forensic treasurer, Samantha de Sola, and a secret weapon, Polly McKenzie, a Liberal Democrat who had until recent elections served as Deputy Director of Policy at 10 Downing Street for the Coalition Government, and had come to us as a consultant. Marketing and public relations support came from Andrea Hartley and her company, Skating Panda. She had apologised to me after the March public meeting. She loved the idea of the party but didn't have time to help. A few days later, she emailed to say she didn't have time to help but would do so anyway. In Sophie, we had the most precious of assets, a leader, a natural and inspirational leader. When she spoke, people listened and wanted to listen. She could run meetings, an underrated skill essential to an evolving organisation. She had already cut her campaign teeth pushing for better treatment for her daughter Grace, whose Asperger's syndrome went undiagnosed for years in part because the condition is assumed not to affect girls. Sophie had become a potent advocate and activist and ran marathons to raise money for autism charities. In her blog, Grace Under Pressure, later published as a book, she documented struggles with public services and schools, and her daughter and herself. Running had also helped to rescue her from depression. Divorced from Grace's father, and for a considerable time a working single mother, she remarried, acquiring two stepsons and a second daughter. She spoke at the first WE meeting about her experiences of juggling work and family in a system and society that sees childcare as a matter for mothers alone. Her parents attended university, the first members of working-class families to do so. After state school in Glasgow, Sophie also went to university, Reading. She found a way into Reuters via a short-term contract and remembers her conversation with her future boss when the company decided to move her onto permanent staff. I'm always interested in people who get in by the back door, he told her. 
Kokoza didn't see in Sophie a woman who got in by the back door. If the author's impressions aligned with her expectations, we carried some of the blame. Literally. Three white, middle-aged, middle-class women. We arrived with bags of white, middle-aged, middle-class food. Sandy, handing out pret-a-manger sandwiches, appeared to Kokoza's eyes, mum, whereas I defined myself as the most obvious politician of the three. This was not a compliment, nor is it ever the business of the Guardian to dole out compliments. That didn't stop us from wincing as we read the piece, because it reinforced precisely the narrative we'd been hoping to change. Listening to Toxvig, Mayer and Walker, clues arise that suggest they may not be able to hear how their assumptions can shade into complacency, Kokosa had written. Their language is encoded with a privilege they appear not to notice. It all suggests difference of the wrong kind, that the life experiences of Mayer, Toxvig and Walker may be alienatingly divergent from the people they want to reach. On the day of publication, membership applications skyrocketed. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. While Kokoza and others, ourselves included, worried whether we were too privileged to pursue politics effectively, another school of thought predicted the Women's Equality Party would dissolve into a puddle of sugar. An article in Spiked greeted our founding with a call for an end to feminism under the headline The Women's Equality Party for Ladies Too Nice for Politics. Women's Equality Party needs a strong dose of Nigel Farage, advised the Telegraph. The Women's Equality Party has a problem. No one hates it, a second Guardian piece declared. If any of us resented these accusations, how dare they call us nice? We bit back the responses that might have punctured our ladylike image. Several of us had tweeted our criticisms of Kokosa's piece, and then regretted doing so. For one thing, we were determined to treat journalists with courtesy, and not only because some of us were journalists. We were setting out to do politics differently and to develop a style and sensibility distinct from the male-dominated old guard. That difference showed itself in small touches. Sandy accepted the title of MC, a role hitherto absent from party politics. Would she be master or mistress of ceremonies, I asked her. It depends on the day, she replied. More ambitious was our desire to resist the combative culture that simultaneously unites and divides Westminster hacks and media managers. Like most members of the parliamentary lobby, I'd learned to expect abusive calls and texts from special advisers as part of my job. Parties often employ human attack dogs who attempt to secure the coverage they want by shouting or threatening to remove access. After reading Kokosa's piece, I couldn't help laughing at a memory that bubbled to the surface. In 2008, I'd gone to the pub after putting to bed my first long-time cover story on David Cameron. The feature explained that the Conservative leader looked set to become Prime Minister, but his rise in the polls and a recent by-election win by a posh Tory candidate did not mean that his gilded past had lost the power to haunt him. I tracked down a contemporary of Cameron's and Oxford University's Bullingdon Club who described a night on the tiles with the wealthy student and his similarly privileged fellow members as Brideshead regurgitated.
champagne memories and social deprivation could make for an uneasy juxtaposition, especially in such tough times. Can someone marinated in plenty viscerally understand what it feels like to be poor or excluded, I wrote. Cameron brushes the question aside with visible irritation. I don't have this deterministic view of life that you can only care about something if you directly experience it, he says. You can't walk a mile in everybody's shoes. Before leaving my office, I'd emailed a copy of the cover image, but not the text, to Cameron's then-director of communications, former News of the World editor Andy Coulson. In UK editions, the cover would run with a gnomic headline, Behind the Smile. Outside Britain, we'd chosen a more direct line, assuming people might not recognise our cover star. David Cameron, a class act. Coulson didn't like the pun at all. He called me to deliver a long ticking off. I recall standing outside the Fox and Anchor as his voice issued tinnily from my mobile phone. Class no longer matters to voters. At the Women's Equality Party, we resolved to handle media politely, but also firmly. One of our core objectives is equal treatment by and in the media. A huge and urgent issue for women and for democracy that I'll explore in depth later in this book. A small but significant part of that objective relates to the ways in which political coverage skews against women. The gladiatorial contests that broadcasters prefer over reflective, conversational interviews benefit neither politics in general nor women in particular. Why should politicians be judged on their ability to withstand a barrage of questions or the same question repeated as the interviewer attempts to extract an answer that he, aggressive interviewers are most often men, likes better? Do we prefer leaders who speak quickly or think deeply? This style of journalism reflects male priorities, male socialisation, and even women skilled at debating are always at a disadvantage. Studies show that audiences react quite differently to men and women taking the floor. Men gain respect. Women attract animosity. Hillary Clinton speaks more softly than either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Yet she was accused throughout her presidential campaign of shouting. As Secretary of State, Clinton's popularity ratings were high. They dropped as soon as she confirmed her run for the White House. This response wasn't confined to male voters. Women are products of the same sets of social messaging, programmed in varying degrees to defer, to support. And that's only the start of the problem. The harder we try to slough off patriarchal programming and determine for ourselves what it means to be female, to be a woman, the more our synapses begin to fry. Where does biological sex end and constructed gender begin? What are intrinsically female qualities? We know that it is an insult to be called nice in the political context. Yet in that same context, as feminists, many of us would go to the barricades to assert our niceness. We assume it is the superpower the new breed of 50-foot women could bring to bear. We imagine Equalia would be a nice place because a gender-balanced society would enable men to relax and discover their own niceness in a gentler, feminised culture. The ease with which the steering committee achieved consensus at its earliest meetings seemed to bear out this notion. 
Then came an argument. We tussled over the future shape of the organisation, and afterwards everyone around the table looked stricken. In raising our voices to defend beliefs, we had inadvertently challenged one of the unspoken shared beliefs that brought us together. True, the disagreement led to better decisions, but maybe the sexes weren't so different after all. Did we, as women, really bring something unique to the table? The next chapter looks at what happens if those tables are not kitchen tables, but cabinet tables. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.